Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 1 of Scene From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we'll be talking about the Spacenet challenges. Let's do the news then. On the 1st of July 2020, I want to jump in there and mention straight away off the bat that Geopandas 0.8 has been released. It's quite a frequent update on Geopandas and it's a really popular geospatial Python library that's being used now. Why is this release so important? For two reasons really. One, it has this inbuilt connectivity to PostGIS. So you can read and write vector data back and forwards from from PostGIS. And this is really interesting and really valuable, especially for us if we're processing raster data, you know, if we're deriving and and vectorizing um, pixels to do this at scale, to connect to a Postgres database with a PostGIS spatially enabled through GeoPandas can make some of these workflows like totally seamless. I'm really excited about that. I've had a play around with it myself. And again, the beauty of GeoPandas is that what would have taken many lines of code that you would have had to have written, a lot of the stuff is going on behind the scenes. And also they've got this optional I call it experimental use of PyGeos, which is a, another speed up operation. So they're making it even faster. So th- this this um, version, this this new release, I think also has the the, the GeoFeather format, which is making things even faster to read and write vector data. Oh man, I really think you should update to this. Yeah, I saw some posts on Twitter about this, and it did look really interesting and exciting in terms of the things that they're doing. I hadn't really played around with it. Have you messed around with the GeoFeathers format before? Yep. Is that worth getting to know? It is, yep. Um, you've got to get the data in, of course. Okay. So um, it's not going to speed up reading shapefiles in, or it certainly didn't in the previous version. But GeoFeather was an additional bolt-on, the update on read and write. So you write it out to this .feather format and read it back in in .feather format. The, the improvement of speed was sort of three, four times, oh, I think. okay. And this is why the PostGIS is so interesting as well. Sometimes you're reading and writing data backwards and forwards quite a lot. Do you use GeoPandas as a replacement for things like Shapely and Fiona and stuff? I don't really use Fiona and Shapely directly, but I think GeoPandas okay. is, is using those libraries yes. um, yeah. native. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. I still do use OGR quite a bit okay, because I've got some legacy code and I, and I still teach OGR a bit on courses. I upgraded my PostGIS, my Postgres, all, all of this stuff to sort of come up to date to to, to really um, experience it. I don't know if you have you used PostGIS much. Uh, not for a couple of years. I know, I know, we're more sort of on the raster side of things, but let's not discount the vector world. <laughs> yeah, if I'm perfectly honest, PostGIS scares me. I fully recognise that if I'm going to be doing any hardcore processing of vector data or large vector files, I should be using it. I, I don't use it enough to know how to use it properly. With a bit of time, you can get quite far, I think, with, with PostGIS and, and SQL and, and, and Postgres. It's not something you should be frightened of. Um, okay, well, I'm going to jump in with something I discovered recently. And it's a project based around open data cubes, which I've sort of been looking into a little bit in the last month or so. Um, but I actually came across this at the GEO Symposium, which was an online group on Earth observations 
week-long series of lectures and, and discussions. And it's the Brazil Data Cube. I mean, on the surface, you just think, okay, why well, is another open data cube? But one of the things that they were talking about in this Geo Symposium talk that I was listening to was the use of web services. And if you go to the GitHub account of Brazil Data Cube, you can see that they're actually developing a couple of new web services. So they've got something called the Web Data Cube service, yep. Web Time Series service, and the Webland Trajectory service. I just thought this is really cool because, I mean, we've got all these various web services that are super useful, do all the things that they need to do. But it certainly seems like data cubes are the thing in terms of managing your data in 2020. So for there to be a group that's trying to build some of the services on top of that, so simple APIs and services that you can actually interact with the data in time series, this is taking it, I think, maybe a, a step further. That's cool. It's really interesting. Um question yeah what do you think is the highest commercial available spatial resolution imagery you can buy over israel uh, so commercial so not not military yeah that you can buy commercial one meter maybe so i'm sure as you know you can get worldview data and Pleiades data yeah sub, sub 50 centimeters yeah uh, but i'm guessing that they're not gonna want to be selling that over israel okay. So since 1997, the highest resolution optical data you could get was two meters. Okay. This month, the NOAA ACRIS and CRSA group <laughs> has announced that they're going to reduce this down to 0.4 meters. So now I'm not aware of other countries with restrictions, but um, okay. I just want to give a, a quick shout to Michael Fradley, who, who pinged me on Twitter this information. This is quite a big thing for people working in that area. I want to talk a little bit about methane. BP, seven days ago, announced a $5 million investment in satellites. So they're, they're using um, high-resolution spectrum imagery from drones, satellites, and, and planes, or, or whatever. They're really interested in detecting um, methane leaks. And this, is, this has been a common problem in the oil and gas industry. But what was quite interesting is that there is no mention of GHGSAT in this press release that, that BP put out. So GHGSAT is a satellite company that are specifically looking at greenhouse gas emissions. I think they've only got one up at the moment, but I think there's plans to put, to put more up. Wow. Can I just quickly break in here? Because it seems like you and I have come at the same story from different sides. So I also had a post that was about methane and i'm yep. going to raise it but this one barely mentions bp and um satellites it does but it does mention that ghg sat and shell have signed a deal to look at covering global sites and trying to get methane leakage down so they currently aim to launch two new satellites in 2020 no in in interesting isn't it can you think of many commercial applications directly having a satellite looking at it maybe we are moving to an age of bespoke sensors for bespoke applications well i guess if they're small enough and cheap enough to to develop quickly and you can get a constellation of four or five uh, small sats and chuck them up then yeah it, it could be the way forward so just to finish up on this methane topic as well, it's quite interesting. So the article that I've got is from Reuters, and it starts off by saying European Space Agency satellites detected huge plumes of the invisible planet warming gas methane. And I'm thinking, okay, so that's going to be Sentinel-5 potentially, I'm guessing. 
at no point does it mention Sentinel. In fact, as I go through it, I can't see mention of any European <laughs> space agency satellites at all. Because the first time we get to talk about satellites is GHGSAT. Yeah. So that's not European Space Agency. And then it talks a little bit about satellites. And then it talks about ExxonMobil, yeah. uh, who are looking at testing eight different detection methods, including satellites unspecified which ones and aerial surveillance with drones helicopters and planes so there's a lot of work being done in this area around trying to monitor methane emissions which is really cool i mean from a, a climate change and environmental perspective it's really cool from a earth observation and technical standpoint it's really cool but um it'd be interesting to maybe get into this in a little bit more detail at some point and find out how all the different satellites are doing it, whether they're all using the same type of technology or whether they've got different methods of analyzing data and or what what's their unique perspective on doing this. And that's it for the news. We're super lucky this episode to have Adam with us. Uh, Adam is Director of Research at IQT Cosmic Works and served as Challenge Manager for SpaceNet 5. Hi there, Adam. Would you be able to give a more detailed introduction to yourself? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Adam Van Etten. I work at Cosmic Works, right, which is one of the labs of InQtel, uh, looking at geospatial analytics. And so probably our most public-facing effort is, is SpaceNet Challenge, which we'll probably go into a little bit more later. I know we've talked about it before, but yeah, my, my background is actually astrophysics um, from grad school. So I, I constantly make the bad joke that I just uh, look down, not up anymore. That's the big change now. <laughs> I mean, that in itself is quite an interesting point. There seems to be a lot more people around the Earth observation sphere at the moment who are coming from sort of data-related careers and things like that and are just using the imagery that we've, we're getting in the, the Earth observation sector as another data set, something that they can just play around with. It's an easy area to get excited about. Right? <laughs> like there's, there are areas, like I did, I did some work in like the cyber domain prior to the geospatial domain, and it's very important, probably more important in a lot of ways than, than geospatial, but at least for me, it doesn't quite tug at the heartstrings like geospatial does. It's just something it's, it's easy to get excited about. So we're going to be talking, I guess, about things like SpaceNet and Kaggle. Would you be able to just give a quick overview as to what SpaceNet is? Right. So, so SpaceNet is something that, that we started uh, back in 2016, actually. And this was a, it's always been a partnership. So kind of the original partnership was, was uh, Cosmic Works, right, with the InQtel Lab. And then um, Digital Globe, now Maxar, and AWS have always been involved. And we've grown it over the years. Now, now it's got nine different partners. So that's, that's been pretty fun to see. But, but the original goal and kind of this, this still the primary goal is to put out labeled data sets for the community to use, right? So okay. it's, it's getting a lot better now. But especially, you know, four or five years ago, uh, there was certainly a lack of high quality labeled data sets that you could use for commercial purposes yeah. or even academic purposes. We curated these data sets. Uh, at this point, we've got nearly a million billing footprints and thousands of kilometers of roads. And then we run challenges with these data sets. So um, to try and drive uh, interest and drive the community, uh, we've run six different challenges with these. We've run these on TopCoder, which is uh, one of the challenge platform, uh, the competition platforms out there. Kaggle is another one. Okay. I'm a big fan of this whole model of, you know, if you have, you have a cool problem um, you want to try and solve, make a public challenge out of it, and you get usually, you know, dozens to hundreds, um, maybe sometimes even thousands of entries 
and so yeah I, I think there's been a lot of success there the problems themselves do they come from the organizers of the competitions or do you take like are people able to submit ideas to you and you go oh this one seems really cool and i bet loads of people have that problem and then you choose them in our case we've mostly selected them um, i think like a lot of the kaggle and top coder challenges kind of are more you know selecting what's interesting from from the uh, interested communities uh, we've found at least for spacenet that since we're also building a data set and then we're putting a lot of effort there that like we had to be very intimately involved with all aspects right what's the data set uh, what's the evaluation metric what's the challenge, all this. So we kind of realized we had to do this kind of all in-house to, to make sure it was really high quality. Uh, but there are certainly a lot, of, a lot of different questions you can ask. And this is a good way to ask them, I think, with, with the yeah. public challenge. This is all deep learning, yeah? Yeah, so, so we don't prescribe any type of solution. But what we've seen, ah, okay. kind of unsurprisingly, right, is that the first SpaceNet challenge, right, we're kind of figuring things out. I think people in the community were also figuring things out. And the winning solution there was not deep learning. Right. But then ever since then, like everything in the top five um, or top 20 even, right, has been a deep learning based approach. I mean, yeah, we don't, we don't prescribe that, but just, you know, given the advances that has been the technique everyone's been, been going through. And it's all computer vision, right, from our perspective, right? There's sure. plenty of geospatial problems that are, that are not computer vision, but the, ours to date have all been. And in that sense, right, the, the deep learning has just uh, taken over. It's pretty exciting to see. I'm quite interested on the type of person who is an entrant into the competition. So do you have any sort of idea as to who goes for these? Are they teams? Are they individuals? Do they have corporate backing? Are they people with data science or statistics or maths or geography? Or is it a complete random mix? Yeah, no, it, it's a cool question. And, and at least for, for what I'm most familiar with, which is the space and entrance, um, it surprised us a bit. Like we kind of expected it would be a lot of corporate but it, it turns out it's it's mostly non-us so that's that's cool i mean that's uh shouldn't be surprised by that but it's fun to see the, the global reach of these things and it's it's mostly kind of single uh, entrance and uh, a lot of these folks like it's thanks to their career and then once in a while you've got people who are just kind of doing this as almost like a hobby yeah. our first winner i believe he was a policeman <laughs> <laughs> A Brazilian policeman, uh, and he just like wanted to do it kind of for fun. Awesome. One of the the cooler things I've seen was a this is not SpaceNet. This is a, this is a kind of a larger uh, or different Kaggle challenge. Um, so it's kind of talking about the larger community, not just SpaceNet. Mm -hmm. And it was an employee of Intel competed in and won like one of the largest challenges that they'd been running. And he, for him, he was like really clear. It was just kind of a pride issue, right? Like he. <laughs> He did, so he won. It was a pretty big prize pool. And, you know, kudos to him. He did a really, really good job. Um, and he did the math afterward. And he's like, I would have come out way ahead if I just worked at the gas station, right? In terms of the hours he put in for this. Wow. So, like, the things you get out of these are actually, like, it's usually pretty impressive given the amount of labor um, that you can take to, like, get these high-quality submissions. Is there a financial prize in the space net? Yeah, yeah. So for each uh, for each of the six challenges, we've had a prize pool of uh, fifty thousand dollars split between the top five. Okay. And even so, like you know, if you if you're not careful with your labor and your compute costs, you can eat into that. If you're if you're yeah. clever about it, and some people are, then that's that's actually pretty pretty uh, nice payday. Yep. Always uh, always have a prize pool of involved with space net. That's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm sort of building on Alistair's question there. With do you get a sense of of how popular the geospatial competitions are 
I think the geospatial ones are actually quite popular from what I've seen. And then this is not necessarily uh, quantitative, just qualitative. Uh, <laughs> I don't have numbers in front of me, but from what I've seen in terms of you know, both Kaggle and, and top coders and, and other challenges, and I think part of it is like there's so much out there in, in open source and academia for computer vision. Yeah. It lends itself pretty well, but not perfectly to geospatial. So like you have to do some work, you have to do some thinking. You can't just slap in a pre-trained model and call it a day and walk away. That's not going to work. You have to do something. But a lot of the building blocks are still there. And so I think it's, it's an interesting, the level of effort is, I think, about right for these challenges. Yeah, because one of the nice things about SpaceNet is that you have all these different spectral bands on the, on the optical stuff. And then, you know, SpaceNet 6 has the SAR data that hasn't been that much of a focus for deep learning. So, so it is different data, isn't it? It feels like we've come a long way from cats versus dogs. It's kind of saying, you know, we've come from this kind of, well, you've got more than one band of data hyperspectral data. I mean, is that, is that something you guys are going to look at? That's something that we would love to look at. Um, we haven't done it yet, obviously, but that would be pretty compelling. Um, you know, we've had multispectral data for all the space nets, right? So eight bands usually, and very few people actually use it because it's still hmm. unclear often how to adapt existing models, which are all three band RGB or green blue to eight band. I mean, how to do that mathematically is pretty easy, right? You, you just kind of add on more layers, but how to actually take full advantage of those extra bands, like it's not always obvious. So a lot of people just ignore that. Um, Hyperspectral would be fun because, you know, there you presumably find a problem where you need all those different bands, right? Yeah, you know, with, with um, the, the worldview data, I think worldview two off the top of my head, there's a time delay between the band acquisitions. So you can, you can also detect if something's moving yeah, between, I think band seven and band eight off the top of my head. So there's, there's, there's that dimension as well. It's really interesting, isn't it? There seems to be so many different dimensions we could, we could look at this. It's very true. That's something that, that we, we being the kind of Cosmic Works team has had a lot of fun in the last many years is trying to break apart the different dimensions. You know, there's, as you point, there's, there's almost infinite number of you can, you mm. can look at, right? Resolution is one, number of imaging bands, another, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In our mind, it's fun because even if you don't make that part of a public challenge like SpaceNet, you, once that data is out there, you can do these kind of analyses. You, know, you could, I could, whoever. And, and sometimes yeah. those are pretty impactful. So we've, we've enjoyed doing that in-house. In and we've seen some other people do some really cool stuff as well. I mean, SpaceNet 6, I was reading, I was reading the, I think you've got three blog posts out of it at the, at the moment. It's multiple past star data, isn't it? Was it from Airborne? It was. Yeah. Yeah. And wasn't one of the findings was that after so many passes, was it two passes that the improvement of the model, it wasn't a dramatic increase after that point. You, you sort of topped out as it were, but that was quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool work by, by, by Jake Schermeyer's the, my colleague who ran it. Yeah. So after two, you kind of were almost there after four passes, um, you see, you saw basically no performance boost. So like these kind of things are, are fun to learn because, you know, that can have a huge impact on how you design your whole system, your sensor, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that was a really cool finding I thought as well. And also, I mean, it's going to come around to what, what I really want to talk to you about in a minute, but <laughs> there's quite a, there was quite a big differential between the, the top results in, in SpaceNet 6, at least it seemed to me. So that's a sort of a good point to sort of park uh, as it were. But the reason I really wanted to talk to you was I've been talking within non-EO and non-deep learning experts who are getting interested in this stuff, but they're not experts in e either the field. And they were saying, um, how do we evaluate this deep learning world? 
And I looked into this and I, and I saw that the, the top 50 places were separated by a, a difference in the mean F score beta of 0.002. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not going to be sure what to say, percentage or, or whatever point. Why is this 50th place, which is this number of decimal places, so close to the first place? Is it just as literal as saying out of every, I don't know, whatever it is, 10,000 pixels, there's, there's a two pixel difference? If you round to two significant figures, right, there's like over 230 people who have the same score, right? 0.93 out of one like that's wild and the top 50 plus had like a difference of 0.002 and that was an interesting challenge and and i think it was it was cool and it was a lot of interest in it so that alone is, is, is a win but to me part of it is like the way you frame the question has a huge impact so that that was yeah the question for this was you know i'll give you an image and you tell me what's that image of right for the whole image it's a classification problem i think those kind of problems there's a lot less nuance. I think most of like the geospatial type challenges have been, I'll give you an image and you identify everything in it, right? And then there's just so much room for differences between competitors that you, in our experience, you don't tend to see quite the same convergent of scores. So, you know, if there's, you know, a hundred buildings in an image, it's unlikely everyone's going to be the exact same score. Whereas if it's just, you have an image and the answer is yes or no, and you add those up over the whole test set, it's, 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 in this case, it was much more likely that you get this very narrow range of scores in the top performers. Is just throwing more compute power at this problem a, a solution? You don't want to run a model for another 200 hours, I guess, to gain another 0.001 to, to get you from 50th to 26th place. Yeah, and, and that's a very good point. And that's something that we've, we being the, the SpaceNet partners and collaboration have, have tried to address somewhat because that's, I think, the biggest weakness of these public challenges is that getting a 0.01 increase in score is, is, is worth almost anything because you can go from 50th to first, right? And usually you do that with exactly what you said, right? You throw more compute at it and you run a big ensemble model, which just means you run 20 models and you average them together or whatever. To me, that's not interesting. So what we've tried to do, well, the simplest, there's lots of ways you could tackle this, right? Lots of sophisticated ways. The simplest way is just say, you get a maximum amount of compute. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, it's, if it takes you more than five minutes to, to test your model, it fails. Doing something like that is you says, you, you know, you can't just throw more compute at it. You have to do something a little more clever, hopefully. You know, a lot of this is like a lot of these competitors, if not almost all of them, like they're taking the most recent deep learning open source models and applying them. That is a lot of the reason you see so much kind of convergence in the top because um, everyone's taking similar approaches often. Um, and and that, that's not a bad thing. It just does mean that, that you're basically tracking what's coming out of academia. Uh, and, yeah. and, that, and, then, and then these challenges are applying the most recent uh, models, which is actually kind of a cool thing to do because again, you can still leverage what's the most recent uh, models, which, you know, may be really hard for me or you to apply, but you've some folks who might have kind of better understanding can, can do it and then open source it and then everyone wins. How do you feel about companies like Esri producing deep learning model where it's literally sort of three lines of code, you put in your, your data and then you press run and then you get the result back and then you've done your deep learning and all, all this is done for you. I think a lot of people want it to, to be that way uh, and, and are maybe claiming it's that way where, you know, you, you give us your data and we'll hit our button and we'll give you the results and there you go. And there are certainly 
That is true in a lot of ways. Part of the reason we, we've been excited about all these analyses we've been doing with SpaceNet is that we can show that you know, it's not a solved problem. So there's certainly, you know, things like, you know, building footprints or people are getting better, sure. But I mean, if, if you tweak the threshold where you say you need really, really precise predictions and building footprints, the scores are terrible, right? Like you can do pretty good now if you want like a rough outline and the rough area and location of the building, you do a pretty good job often, right? If you need square edges and you need to know where the garage is, like, no, no, we're not there. <laughs> um, so there's plenty to do. I think that just being careful with what your report or what you're asking for is a lot of it, right? You know, accuracy often is, I think, a worthless metric, frankly, because if you have imbalanced data, which you usually do in geospatial domain, frankly, right? Then if you get all the false negatives right, then that's great. But yeah, what if it's all background except for three things of interest? You can really skew what you report, right? I think it's really interesting to try and equip non-experts with information that they can evaluate. I think picking the right metric is one, but, but that's hard because to your point, because you know, you need some expertise to understand the right metric, right? One thing too is, is just like having a, met, a data set that you can use to evaluate. So again, I think that's part of the reason why I think ImageNet kind of struck the fancy of a lot of the, the Silicon Valley companies was that since there was just like this, this held back validation data set, that you could kind of trust those scores. So if you know Microsoft and send like, hey, we want ImageNet, then people understood that that meant something, right? If they said we scored 0.99 on our internal data set, I don't know what that means, right? Building up some kind of data set that that people accept as a benchmark that you score on, I think that can help too, right? Yeah, and I've got really two other things that I really want to ask you. One is, is training data now the key differentiator? And two. What are your thoughts on unsupervised deep learning? Because I see a lot of chatter about that being a lot of companies saying, I've got amazing results on unsupervised deep learning. I'll give a not very interesting answer, which is I'm not sure. So I think often training data is a differentiator in terms of, of who really is the winner at the end of the day. And, and often that's just because the biggest advances on the algorithmic side, right, the model side, are from academia. And, and those are often open sourced, right? Yeah. And so it's non-trivial to apply those, but it's doable usually. The caveat I say, the reason I'm not really sure is that some of the studies that, that we've done internally in Cosmic has, has been on data set sizes, right? And there are lots of problems where if you just keep adding data and data and data, you, you don't actually get much improvement. And then um, the second question, I've already forgotten. <laughs> unsupervised, unsupervised deep learning. It's kind of a holy grail, right? And I think there's a lot of interesting work that I've seen recently and kind of the weekly supervised. So an example would be if for the geospatial world, maybe a poor example, I haven't thought this through, but like um, you have an image, you know that the, the label is that this is a parking lot, maybe the parking lot in North America or something. And then that can maybe help you identify like the cars in the parking lot. Whereas if you say this is a parking lot in India, maybe you can adjust your model. So the weekly supervised, I think, is, is there's a lot of work there. And I think there's a lot of upside in the next couple of years. I think it's going to be some really cool stuff so that you don't have to have these extremely high quality, but time consuming and expensive labels. You can do more of a general label or a poor label even 
and maybe yeah. your model can learn and kind of bootstrap off those poor labels to have a higher fidelity prediction. How can listeners be informed of future competitions? And is there anything in the pipeline that they should be aware of? Yeah, so probably the easiest way is just the, the spacenet.ai website. Um, we keep that pretty updated. Spacenet 7. So that one's coming up end of the summer, early early fall. Uh, and that one we're, we're really excited about in that it's the first time that, that space is going to look kind of at the time dimension. To date, we've done a lot of really cool things, but it's been kind of single snapshots. For the, this upcoming challenge, we've got a very diverse set of geographies and then monthly snapshots over two years of each of those. And then, and then labels of the actual um, infrastructure, so the building footprint. So the goal is right to track the change in in building footprint over time right there's a ton of reasons you would want to do this right like you know, population tracking um things like this uh, it, it connects really well to a lot of the united nations um development goals we'll have a lot more blog posts and whatnot out on that but that's also it, it's planet data and so their high revisit rate is pretty cool there the uniqueness and the connection to what's already been done in different domains is going to be pretty interesting to, to a lot of parties Adam, it's been absolutely amazing talking to you. It's been really, really interesting. I've learned loads. Uh, hopefully our, our listeners will be engaged and we'll check out uh, the upcoming challenge uh, and have a look at some of the challenges that have been in the past as well. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was fun for me as well. Brilliant. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. Almost caught me off guard. Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.